This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 122nd edition of the program. Today is December 7th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal signups this week. So we have quite a bit of people to thank. I want to start with Anders Danielson, Andrew Bayerl, Ben Adam Johnson, Brian Mead, Brian Gonzalez, Captain Jingle Pants, Dora Elizabeth Luna Rivera, Faye Adelstein, Faraz Akbar, General Boo, James Chandler, Jerry Watch, John Chase, Jose Galdomez, Joy Choden, Keith Williams, Kimberly Bensel, Kajartan Kajartanist, Kyle Panic, Lorenzo Moog, Marcel David, Mark Tatu, Mary Gleros, Nicholas James Reeves, Roy D. Thompson, Roy Eugene, Shakti Sivaramakrishan, The Juice Media, and Trey Palmer. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, we will continue our ongoing discussion about net neutrality. But first up on the program, we'll discuss the details of the GOP's tax scam that will most likely be codified into law in the coming weeks. Also in this episode, Bernie Sanders actually got some Republicans to admit that they'll be cutting Social Security, or attempting to at least, in order to fund tax cuts for the rich. And on the subject of Republican scumbags, we'll also talk about how they decided to fully embrace Roy Moore from Alabama after all. And when it comes to net neutrality, we'll discuss how Ajit Pai is asserting that he refuses to back down. And we'll talk about why he's blaming celebrities for backlash to his plan. He also essentially gave net neutrality activists the middle finger this week. Also, Ted Cruz came to Ajit Pai's defense, as well as another Republican FCC commissioner, Brendan Carr, who decided to lie through his teeth on CBS News. And finally, in this episode, I'll give you an update to the congressional race we've been following in the 4th District of Nevada between Representative Ruben Kiwin and Amy Vilela. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy the show. So last weekend, at nearly 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, Senate Republicans were scrambling to pass their nearly 500-page tax reform plan, and they were in such a rush to pass this bill and vote on it that they literally included handwritten amendments in the margins of the bill. Now, they did end up passing this legislation in a 51 to 49 vote with all but one Republican voting in favor of this legislation and surprisingly no Democrats voting with Republicans. Now, of course, as you could have guessed, as soon as President Donald Trump got word that the bill passed the Senate, he was elated and immediately bragged about it at the first opportunity he got. So last night at about three in the morning, I got a call. I said, call me. You can call me. It's the largest tax decrease in the history of our country by far. It's not even close. I said, we have to use the word tax cuts. 
Now, if you want to throw reform, you could say tax cuts and reform. But you have to use the word cut because people don't know what reform means. Reform could mean your taxes are going up. In fact, a lot of people thought that. So for years, 30 years, 31 years, they've been using the word reform. So we use the word tax cuts. And last night, out of 52 Republican senators, 51 voted. The Democrats left before the vote was even, somebody said started, somebody said before it was over. I don't even care. But we got no Democrat help, and I think that's going to cost them very big in the election. Actually, they didn't just vote on tax cuts, specifically for the wealthy, but they also voted to increase taxes on most Americans. That includes the middle and lower classes. Now, what I find hilarious here is that Donald Trump actually implied in that clip that it's misleading to refer to this bill as tax reform, because really what this is about is tax cuts. But in actuality, he's completely wrong, because even though it is true that this bill does cut taxes, 80% of those tax cuts go to the richest 1% of Americans in the country, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But I mean, maybe since Republicans were in such a rush to vote on this legislation, they didn't know that. Because as the New York Times reports, even hours after the Senate vote, tax experts were scratching their heads over precisely what had made it into the final version of the bill and the impact of some significant provisions. But now, we actually know specifically what this legislation entails, and contrary to what Donald Trump wants us to believe, this isn't just a tax cut for the wealthiest Americans in the country. This is a substantial increase on the middle class, and you don't have to dig very deep in this bill to determine that that is actually the case. But when it comes to the giveaway to the rich, well, for all of you private jet owners watching this, you'll probably be happy to know that Republicans are actually offering you some much needed tax relief. That's right, this bill literally includes a tax cut for private jet owners, and also the New York Times reports that there's a subsidy for private and religious schools, if you want to even call them that. And additionally, they didn't end up closing many tax loopholes like they promised to do. Surprise, surprise. So much for simplifying the tax code, right? <laughs> but Ryan Grimm of The Intercept lays out specifically what rich people will be getting as a result of this bill if it is in fact codified into law. A full $1.5 trillion alone is going to slash the corporate tax rate and CEOs have said repeatedly they plan to pocket that money rather than invest it or give workers higher wages. The alternative minimum tax, paid almost exclusively by the rich, is also eliminated. That's a $700 billion giveaway. Another $150 billion goes to repealing the estate tax, which currently exempts the first $11 million of the deceased's estate, so nobody even remotely middle class pays it. The repeal benefits so few people, you can practically list them out. More than $200 billion in cuts goes to a provision that allows a greater deduction for dividends on foreign earnings. That's not for you. Roughly $600 billion goes to reducing taxes on pass-throughs and other businesses not set up as corporations, which law firms, lobby shops, and doctor's offices often benefit from. Poor and middle-class people do not tend to set themselves up as pass-throughs. Under current law, many tax credits phase out at low-income thresholds. The GOP plan changes that by raising the threshold so richer people can also claim the credit. That provision alone is by definition a $200 billion tax cut for the wealthy. Individual and family tax rates are cut by about $1 trillion, and some regular people will indeed see some of that money as a tax cut, but not much. 
As the New York Times noted, by 2027, people making between $40,000 and $50,000 would see a combined increase of $5.3 billion in taxes. Where would that money go? Folks earning more than $1 million would see their taxes collectively cut by $5.8 billion a year. Now that all amounts to trillions of dollars in tax cuts for the wealthy. And of course, this begs the question... How are they going to pay for that? Because whenever we push for policies like Medicare for all and tuition-free public colleges and universities, well, we're always asked how we're going to pay for it. So we're turning that question around and we're asking Republicans, how are you going to pay for tax cuts to the wealthy? And that actually is a question that has a very simple answer. They're going to pay for it by raising taxes on you. And this is how they're going to do it specifically. The bill raises $1.6 trillion by repealing the personal exemption everybody gets on their tax returns. It raises another $1.3 trillion by going after deductions for state and local taxes, mortgage interest, charitable donations, interest on student loans, medical expenses, teachers' out-of-pocket expenses for paper and pencils for students, and a bunch of other nickel and diming of the middle class. The plan gradually raises $128 billion in taxes by changing the way inflation is tabulated so that your taxes slowly creep up over the years as the brackets come down. And then, of course, the plan adds about $1.5 trillion to the debt over 10 years. That gets you most of the way to $6 trillion with a handful of smaller tax hikes thrown in, some of which won't obviously hurt the middle class. The domestic production deduction, a $96 billion boondoggle, is repealed, for instance, and $54 billion is saved by ending the credit for testing cures for rare diseases. And understand that these are the more general ways in which the middle class's taxes will go up in order to pay for tax cuts to the richest Americans in the country. But when you really dive into the specifics, you begin to see how they're trying to squeeze every dollar they possibly can out of the poor and the middle class to make sure that these tax cuts to the rich are in fact paid for. So for example, as the New York Times reports, the Senate moved to tighten deductions for lower and middle income wage earners. The bill, for example, prohibits employers from rewarding employees with gift cards so that a reward of say $25 or $50 in the form of a gift card doesn't escape being taxed. So if you work at a retail chain, for example, and that company wants to offer you a gift card at a company picnic and offer it off, you know, for raffles, or if they want to give it to their employees during the holiday time so they can buy a turkey for their family at Safeway, for example. Well, Republicans are making sure that that doesn't happen anymore because they're not able to tax those gift cards. So they want to make sure that they can tax every single dollar that middle and low income wage earners make. And again, this is just one of the many ways in which they are trying to drain every dollar out of the poor. They're literally preventing employers from giving their employees gift cards because they don't have a way of taxing that. So when they talk about being the party of tax cuts, when they lambast Bernie Sanders as a socialist because he wants to raise everyone's taxes, that's all projection because this bill is the largest increase ever. And that's a fact. So in the end, this, of course, is a tax scam. Hence why people refer to it as the GOP tax scam. Because it is. They're telling you it's one thing. They're saying that this is a tax cut for everyone, when in actuality, that's not the case. Now, make no mistake about it. There are some benefits here for the middle class, like they are doubling the standard deduction. But in the end, that means nothing because they're still going to be raising taxes and doing away with other deductions for middle and low income wage earners in the end. So this is nothing more than a giveaway to the rich 
and it's also simultaneously theft. They are stealing from the middle and lower classes in order to give that money to the rich. What this is, is socialism. It's reverse socialism, where instead of taking from everyone and the wealthiest Americans in order to spread that wealth around, they're taking from the lowest Americans and they're trying to put that money in the hands of the richest 1% of the country. And it's the biggest scam that we may see in our lifetimes if this does actually pass. But all signs point to this being codified into law. And I would probably guess that if it is going to pass, Donald Trump will most likely be signing this before the end of the year. So we're all going to be hurting because they want to give more tax breaks to their donors. That's what this is about. Taking from the poor and giving it to the rich, the people in the country that already have everything. That's what this party is about. That's who they represent. They don't care about you. They only care about appeasing the rich in this country who also happen to be their donors. The Republican Party is currently trying to convince average Americans that tax cuts for the wealthy is actually in our best interest because at the end of the day, rich people will be so touched by the Republican Party's generosity that they'll be encouraged to invest in the U.S. economy, create jobs, and even possibly raise their employees' wages as a direct result of these tax cuts. Now, unfortunately for the Republican Party, a plurality of Americans aren't buying into their bullshit because a Reuters-Ipsos poll actually found that 49% of Americans oppose the Republican Party's plan to reform the U.S. tax system, and only 29% of the country support it. But I mean, still, for a bill that actually raises taxes on the lower and middle classes in order to pay for tax cuts for the rich, 29% is still way too high of a number. For one-third of Americans to still buy into this idea that trickle-down economics is going to work when it's failed multiple times, it's mind-boggling to me. But this is what's going to happen, because we've seen the way that this story plays out before, and we have spoilers. They're going to raise the deficit as a result of these tax cuts, and then they're going to propose a solution to the problem that they've created. And of course, that solution will be to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Now, Republicans rarely admit this explicitly, except recently, Marco Rubio surprisingly did admit that this is the party's intentions. In fact, he said the way that you address the federal deficit is, quote, we have to do two things. We have to generate economic growth, which generates revenue, while reducing spending. That will mean instituting structural changes to Social Security and Medicare for the future. So by saying that he wants to reduce spending by instituting structural changes to Social Security and Medicare for the future, it might not sound like he's explicitly saying that he wants to cut Social Security, but that's exactly what he's saying. Now, on the Senate floor, Bernie Sanders actually asked him about this admission. And of course, since he was put on the spot, he decided to lie. Now, I see Senator Rubio down here as well. He just the other day, correct me if I'm wrong, Senator Rubio. I know you just walked in and I've got you into this debate. But correct me if I am wrong, if you did not say yesterday that the Senate would now proceed to a quote-unquote entitlement reform, which in fact will mean cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And I would yield to my friend from Florida to tell me whether or not I am accurately portraying what he said just the other day. Mr. President. The Senator for Florida. Mr. President, it would uh, surprise my friend to know that uh, in Florida, we got a lot of people on Medicare and Social Security. One of them is my mother. 
If I were to cut her Medicare and Social Security, sir, I probably could never see her again or go home. So the answer to your question is no. As I've been clear time and again, I believe that for future generations like myself, there need to be adjustments made. All right. Let me quote you. Let me quote you. Let me quote you, Senator Rubio. Tell me if this quote is right. This is a quote that you just made yesterday. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. But as I understand it, you spoke to a group of Wall Street lobbyists, and this is what you said, quote, many argue that you can't cut taxes because it will drive up the deficit. But we have to do two things. We have to generate economic growth, which generates revenue while reducing spending. That will mean instituting structural changes to Social Security and Medicare for the future, end of quote. Now, let me help define what my Republican colleagues mean when they talk about structural changes to Social Security and Medicare. It will mean that at a time when senior citizens are splitting their pills in half, Republicans will go forward with massive cuts to Medicare. Now, maybe, maybe their idea will be to raise the retirement age to 70, forcing older workers in terms of Social Security to work more before they can get their benefits. Maybe it will be privatizing Medicare and giving people a voucher. When my Republican friends talk about saving Social Security and Medicare, what they are talking about is cutting it. Are you not convinced, Bernie? I mean, why would Marco Rubio want to cut Social Security when his mom is on Social Security? And she would clearly be outraged at the fact that her own son voted to cut a program that she benefits from. Well, when masters of doublespeak like Marco Rubio talk about cutting programs like Social Security, you have to realize that they're not actually saying that they want to cut Social Security for the people currently benefiting from it right now, because of course, a lot of their constituents are older and they do rely on programs like Social Security and Medicare. But but what he is saying is that he wants to cut Social Security for future generations. And that's why it's really important to listen to every single word that Republicans use, specifically when they talk about Social Security, because usually they have a couple of catchphrases that let us know exactly what they're doing. So when they talk about reforming Social Security, that always means cuts. When they talk about making sure it lasts for future generations, that usually means raising the retirement age and paying out less benefits so that way people my age, when we actually are old enough to retire, we won't be able to even rely on Social Security. Now, you don't actually even have to take my word for it because Bernie Sanders actually got one of his colleagues in the Senate to admit to this very fact that he is talking about Social Security, but cutting it for future generations. So watch this exchange between Bernie Sanders and Pat Toomey, and it is incredibly illuminating and sheds a lot of light on the Republican Party's hidden agenda. Are you guaranteeing the American people that you will not be cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicare? Don't use the word save, because what save means is a cut. Will you guarantee the American people now there will be zero cuts to benefits in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. What? But you're not, excuse me, it's my time. I will yield to you. I will yield to you, but let me finish. I yielded to you before. Will you guarantee the people of this country 
that after this bill passes, you will not come back, raise the retirement age, voucherize Medicare, raise the retirement age to Medicare, cut cost of living increases by in instituting a so-called chained CPI. Do I have your word on that? So, so I have to disappoint the senator from Vermont by informing him that there is no secret plan to do any of the above. We are not in some process to spring something. If we wanted to make these changes in Medicare and Medicaid, this would be the vehicle because we have reconciliation protection to do it. You know, let me just be very clear. I'm happy to hear this. Do I have your word now that you as a senator, I know you can't speak for everybody, that you as a senator, after this bill is passed, and I suspect it will be, you will not support any cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Do I have that word I, from I, you? I, I am not going to support any cuts to people who are on the program and need oh, those benefits. There it is. But I want this Reclaiming program to survive. I'm going to acknowledge that me, we, we need this time. program for the next right, generation, he too. The, he just let the cat out of the box, or whatever the phrase is. He just told you he's going to cut Social Security. That's it, my friends. He will not cut it, what he just said, he will not cut it for people who are on Social Security right now. I hear that. But if you are 50 years of age, or you are 55 years of age, they just told you, my friend from Pennsylvania just told you, they may go forward to raise the retirement age, they may cut your cost of living adjustment. That is what he just said. So there is a plan, and that is exactly what they intend to do. And that's why I hope that we can get strong support for this amendment that will require a two-thirds vote to prevent any cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And with that, Mr. President, I would yield. That is how you play politics. And make no mistake about it, if every single Democrat held Republicans' feet to the fire to this extent, then they wouldn't be able to get away with half the shit that they are able to actually get away with. So, of course, what Pat Toomey admitted there, as Bernie Sanders explained, is that the way that they are going to respond to this deficit crisis that they're creating is by cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Now, again, it's very rare that you'll actually find a Republican outright say that we should privatize Social Security or outright cut Social Security, but that's exactly what they want to do, and it's why when you catch one of these behind-the-door speeches that they have with Wall Street executives, that's what they're talking about. I mean, Wall Street has been salivating over Social Security for decades. They've been wanting to privatize it for a really long time. They've been wanting to dip into the cookie jar that is Medicare and Medicaid. The problem is that there's so much public support for these programs that cutting it would be highly unpopular, which is why Republicans have to lie and result to speaking in misleading terms in order to deceive the American people and reduce the chance that they'll catch wind of the party's real agenda. So what the Republican Party is doing is they are cutting taxes of the wealthiest Americans in the country and Ultimately, we're all going to get screwed over in the process. I mean, to cut the taxes of people who already have more money than they could spend in 10 lifetimes, let alone one, that's egregious enough in and of itself. But when you factor in the fact that Republicans actually want to screw us over and rob money from us in order to pay for tax cuts to their donors, I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. This party is shameless in the way in which they just have completely sold out to the interests of the rich and large multinational corporations. They don't give a damn about you and I, but somehow they still manage to win elections. Well, that would stop 
if more Democrats did what Bernie Sanders did here. You have to emulate what Bernie Sanders is doing. You have to use their own words against them and dissect every single word that they use when they talk about Social Security because it is apparent that they want to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but you actually have to be an astute political observer to catch that this is what they want to do in their rhetoric because, again, they speak in veiled terms. So the Republican Party, I mean, I don't have to tell you that this party is a joke. To even call them a party would grant them legitimacy that they don't deserve. This isn't a party. This is just a conglomerate of corporate sellouts that are elected to do one thing, and that is to give tax cuts to their donors and screw over the working people in this country. It is absolutely sickening. A couple of weeks ago on the show, I talked about the U.S. Senate race that is going on in Alabama between Doug Jones and Roy Moore, and in that segment, I actually gave the Republican Party credit because in light of the revelations that Roy Moore is a pedophile, they actually chose to distance themselves from Roy Moore, which was actually surprising to me. And some Republicans at the time were even contemplating expulsion in the event he were to win. And he was even trailing to his Democratic opponent in the polls. But time really does tend to heal all wounds because he's now back up in the polls once again. And the Republican Party is now starting to warm up to the idea of a pedophile joining their ranks in the Senate. Well, in fact, I shouldn't say that they're warming up to the idea of a pedophile serving alongside them in Congress because they just full throatedly endorsed Roy Moore because President Donald Trump, who's also a serial sexual harasser and can probably empathize with Roy Moore, called up Roy Moore to offer his endorsement. And as CNN explains, according to a release from the Moore campaign, Trump called the Senate candidate a fighter and wrapped up the call by saying, go get him, Roy. Trump also tweeted, Democrats' refusal to give even one vote for massive tax cuts is why we need Republican Roy Moore to win in Alabama. We need his vote on stopping crime, illegal immigration, border wall, military, pro-life, VA, judges, Second Amendment, and more. Note to Jones, a Pelosi-Schumer puppet. Now, what happens next will surely surprise you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not going to surprise you. Um, the RNC followed Donald Trump's lead and decided to also full-throatedly endorse Roy Moore as well. And with the RNC's decision to support Roy Moore comes something that's crucial to his campaign. Money. So they'll be promoting his campaign and they'll be offering him funding. And Jake Tapper reports that the Republican National Committee is following President Donald Trump's lead here. So if Donald Trump hadn't endorsed Roy Moore, then presumably the RNC wouldn't have done the same. Now, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders had this to say about the president's decision. The White House originally said that if the accusations against Roy Moore were true, uh, then Moore should step aside. I'm wondering how the president reached the conclusion that all of Moore's accusers, including those who have put forward evidence, are lying. Uh, didn't say they were lying. Um, the president's position hasn't changed, still finds those concerning. But as we've also said, uh, the president feels that um, he would rather have 
a um, person that supports his agenda versus somebody who opposes his agenda every step of the way. And until the rest of that process plays out, you have a choice between two individuals uh, and the president's chosen to support more. Even if that person who would support his agenda has done what Roy Moore's accusers have said Again, we've said that the allegations are concerning. Um, and if true, he should step aside. But we don't have a way to validate that. And that's something for the people of Alabama to decide. I just want to clarify here then. Is it the White House's position then, sort of formally here, that it is worse to have a Democrat in that Senate seat than somebody who is accused of sexually abusing a teen girl? Um, look, as I said, we find the allegations to be troubling. And why did the president endorse? Look. Um, I think that those are different things in terms of uh, we aren't going to be the ones to determine that process. That's for the people of Alabama to determine what those things come down on. He does want people that support his agenda. Um, he's not going to obviously support a Democrat. There you have it. The White House is pretty much saying, without explicitly saying it, that they'd rather have a pedophile in the Senate than a Democrat. Now, this isn't something that 100% of the party is on board with. In fact, Senator Jeff Flake actually sent a check to Doug Jones. But, I mean, overall, the party does seem to be following in Donald Trump's footsteps here. And the last time when I talked about this, I stated that, you know, if a party as evil and corrupt as Republicans think that you're a piece of shit, referring to Roy Moore, then really, you've got to be garbage of a human being to be rejected by the Republican Party. And I even alluded to that in the thumbnail for that video where I said that apparently Republicans still do have standards. It turns out I was wrong. So uh, I've learned my lesson here. Never ever give Republicans credit because they are going to quickly disprove you. <laughs> and it's not like I gave them <laughs> that much credit, but even the little tiny bit of credit I gave them, they proved me wrong within weeks. Dum, 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 dum. So, I mean, that's how enthusiastic they are about pursuing their anti-American pro-corporate agenda. They're willing to embrace a pedophile in order to help them give tax cuts to their donors. That's what this party is about. That's what they represent. It is absolutely despicable. They have zero standards. I mean, what's next? So they, they're accepting a pedophile. Are they going to accept someone who is uh who does bestiality are they going to accept convicted criminals maybe i mean who knows will they accept a murderer their standards are so low that nothing would surprise me at this point nothing so this is one of two parties we have in this country and to even refer to them as a party is a misnomer because they're not really even a party they're just a collective of corporate sellouts who have no sense of morality they are driven by their desire to do what their donors want them to do so they can keep their job in congress that's it that's all this is about this party is a joke and again i shouldn't call them a party because they're not and again one of two options for main political parties we have in this country Welcome to modern day America in 2017. We have a party that is extreme as they can possibly get, who currently controls all three branches of government and a majority of uh, state legislatures across the country and hold uh, seats in governor's offices, a majority of those too. Unbelievable. 
So on last week's show, I highlighted instances of media bias when it comes to net neutrality, specifically with regard to Fox News and how they not only gave Ajit Pai a platform to lie to the American people, but how they actually helped him lie to the American people. And of course, this week, his media tour continued and the coverage of net neutrality overall didn't actually improve with one shining exception, surprisingly being Joanne Reed, who did a relatively good job talking about the issue, but I mean, aside from that outlier, almost any other conversation about net neutrality that took place in the mainstream media ranged from poor to just downright terrible. And of course, when it comes to segments about net neutrality, the worst of the worst always featured Ajit Pai, because... He's really good at obfuscating the truth, and if you don't know about net neutrality and you only listen to what Ajit Pai has to say, then I think you might be persuaded by his bullshit, but the fact of the matter is that he is lying through his teeth, and by far the worst segment about net neutrality I saw all week was on an MSNBC show called The Hugh Hewitt Show, and before we even get into the substance of what Ajit Pai said, I can't help but wonder, is Ajit Pai even human? He acts like a robot. Case in point. Please welcome now Chairman Ajit Pai, the man atop the Federal Communications Commission. Chairman Pai's commission sits in turn atop radio and television, and of course now the internet. Nothing. No blinking. Nothing. <laughs> that is not normal. That's very weird. But what's even more weird than Ajit Pai's robotic demeanor is his unwillingness to listen to the American people because during this interview, he made it very clear that he's not backing down and basically there's nothing that we can say to him that will change his mind. I have an open mind on net neutrality. Could someone persuade you to keep the rule as this order hearing goes forward? Well, looking at the record as we did, we had an unprecedented amount of input. Uh, we've come to the conclusion that the right approach was the Clinton free market approach from the 1990s all the way. You're not changing. I'm not going to change at this point. Uh, if there are certain tweaks uh, that people want to uh, talk about in terms of the free market approach, I'm open to that. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, the comments from everybody from Ben Thompson to other edge providers to the, uh, the other folks who've uh, submitted comments in the record, I think have persuaded us that we're on the right track. Okay. We've had an unprecedented amount of input, but we've come to the conclusion that we don't give a shit about it. That's basically what he's saying here. Now, what's funny is he states, the folks who submitted comments that are on the record persuaded us that we're on the right track, but those comments overwhelmingly tell you that they do not support your repeal of Title II net neutrality. But the way that he's able to pretend to be on the side of the now more than 23 million comments submitted to the FCC is by alleging that in those comments from people that claim to support a free and open internet, well, they're actually in agreement with him because... He also supports a free and open internet. What I'm focused on is making sure that we have a free and open internet for the entire internet economy. So when you submit comments to the FCC saying that you support a free and open internet, well, then he's saying, okay, great, we agree. Now, the problem is that what Ajit Pai is trying to do is he's saying, I support a free and open internet, but he's pushing for a plan that would reduce freedom on the internet. But this is because his definition of net neutrality altogether is problematic because according to him, net neutrality or destroying net neutrality specifically is what would actually facilitate a free and open internet. This is how he describes net neutrality. Not one in a hundred people know what net neutrality means. <laughs> I really, if yeah. they haven't got, the, they, they don't even understand that Facebook is running on algorithms, right? So they're not really understanding net neutrality. How did net neutrality end up winning the slogan war if nobody understands 
understands what it means. Well, it's a very seductive marketing slogan, and over the years, it's morphed into basically whatever people want it to mean. Originally, it was meant to say, you know, last mile connections, uh, you know, th that's where we need to focus our attention. Now, it simply means any content on the internet, uh, what should it be regulated or should it not be? And so, that's one of the reasons why I've tried to focus on the facts, and if you look at the detailed order that we've made public for the first time ever, well before the FCC's vote, we go into painstaking detail as to what it is that a free and open internet means and why our proposed framework, President Clinton's framework, is the right one for that internet. So that clip is actually pretty telling because he states here that the term net neutrality morphed into whatever people want it to mean. And that is nothing more than projection because certainly he's tried to redefine what net neutrality means, but it's always carried the same meaning for people who support net neutrality. It just means that internet service providers treat all web traffic equally. It's not a very complicated principle, but because of all of the propaganda that's being pushed by companies who are lobbying to kill net neutrality and corporate shills like Ajit Pai who keep spewing misinformation in order to deceive Americans, well, they've successfully made the subject more complex and convoluted than it really is. And Ajit Pi probably knows that you can't really convince people that repealing net neutrality facilitates a free and open internet, but his goal ultimately is to muddy the waters just enough to make the subject more complicated so that way if you're a newcomer to the subject of net neutrality and you hear everyone talking about it and you want to do some research on the issue, well when you look up the arguments on both sides of this issue, you'll find that both are claiming to support a free and open internet. So if you really are trying to learn about this subject, then discerning who actually supports a free and open internet is probably pretty difficult. But on this interview with Hugh Hewitt, of course, before Hugh ended the interview, he literally wished Ajit Pai good luck on his quest to fuck up the internet, and he also allowed Ajit Pai to play the victim yet again and even upgraded his victim status. And you were personally threatened because of this, as was your family. Has that, have they laid off? Did the, did the word get through that left, right, and center simply do not accept that kind of behavior? I would certainly hope so, but I will say that it's an ongoing problem that we've had to deal with, and it's been extremely unpleasant, uh, to say the least, for me, and I'm used to some of it, but especially for my wife and my kids, and uh, they're not part of this public policy debate, nor should they be brought into the debate. So it's ongoing? It's still going on? Unfortunately, that's, yeah, there are some security issues that we've had to tend to. Uh, the world in which we live. Chairman, thank you for coming and talking to me about this. Good luck in the rulemaking ahead. So notice how last week when Ajit Pai was being interviewed by Steve Ducey about the two signs that were left in front of his house, that qualified as harassment. But all of a sudden, those signs are now being upgraded. Those now constitute threats against Ajit Pai and his family. So his victim status has, in fact, been elevated. Now, overall, the reason why this interview was such a disaster was because Hugh Hewitt is a pseudo-journalist that couldn't conduct a quality interview to save his life. And if you watch the full interview, you know that he literally started out this interview not by immediately diving into questions about net neutrality, but by asking Ajit Pai what he's going to do to improve the signals for AM radio stations. But for the 12 people that still do listen to AM radio, you can rest assured that this is something that's high on Ajit Pai's priorities. But I'm not just being down on Hugh Hewitt because he's a right-wing Republican Party hack, because even conservatives with the smallest semblance of journalistic integrity know how to ask better questions. And we actually saw an example of this on the Howie Carr Show on Newsmax TV. One of the criticisms that I've seen of the effort to repeal net neutrality regulation is that 
internet service providers are going to fundamentally change the way you interact with the internet. And, and by that I mean they're going to make it so just having a connection to the internet doesn't guarantee access to every website that you would want to visit. Uh, so do you see, a, you know, if we repeal these regulations, is there a scenario coming in the future for Americans where you buy an internet plan and your internet plan says you can go to Netflix, you can go to Facebook, uh, but you're going to have to pay extra if you want to go to, say, Amazon, or you're going to, you know, you're going to be buying a select group of websites that you're allowed to visit, as opposed to buying that connection and being having the freedom to visit any website you choose. Absolutely not. And not only that, we haven't seen that in the past when we had these internet regulations for 20 years, starting in the Clinton administration. Uh, and so strange as it is for a Republican chairman to say that President Clinton got it right, in this regard he did, <laughs> to say that a market-based vision was the right one for the internet. It didn't allow companies to have uh, that kind of uh, influence over what we saw, and yet it still maintained market-based regulation. Secondly, if you look at where the threats are coming to that sort of thing, it's not coming from internet service providers. It's coming from different companies who might not like the content that's carried on their networks, and they simply censor them. And that, at least, I think, is something that people need to be worried about, not the FCC's regulations being the only things standing between us and a free market of uh, online expression. Now, even though that interviewer is biased and supports Ajit Pai's agenda, well, still, that was a really important question to ask, because that question allowed Ajit Pai to expose his own stupidity with his answer. He assured us that ISPs won't section off portions of the internet and force consumers to pay extra money, but at the same time, he's empowering those internet service providers to do exactly that by repealing net neutrality. And Ajit Pai is still pushing this idea that net neutrality is a new phenomenon that only became a standard in 2015, when again, Net neutrality has always existed, we just didn't reach net neutrality by classifying it as a utility under Title II of the 1934 Communications Act. So, net neutrality has been the norm, it has been the standard, and it is the reason why so many companies were able to get their start. But after hearing Ajit Pai's lies about net neutrality, there are still some conservatives that support his pro-corporate agenda. Which is odd to me because in repealing net neutrality, you make a lot of right-wing websites like Breitbart vulnerable because Comcast can easily throttle bandwidth to Breitbart if they say something that Comcast doesn't like. I mean, they complain about how Twitter bans right-wingers all the time. A G Pai has, in fact, complained about this himself, but you're allowing companies like Comcast to be able to go after conservative websites that they don't like. But still, there are supporters of Ajit Pai's agenda, and since Donald Trump is against net neutrality, even though he doesn't know what net neutrality is or means, well... Howie Carr explained to us why there are still people who support this agenda, even if it's against their own interests. And for a lot of conservatives, a lot of people listening, they might not understand uh, this, the technical specifics uh, of how the Internet works. I certainly don't. But the fact that you're repealing something that the Obama administ administration put in place, that's enough for them. That They're sold on that. But there are a lot of, you know. <laughs> so if Obama did it, by definition, it's bad. It doesn't matter if net neutrality is something that protects conservatives as well, and conservative websites as well. Well, since Obama did it, we don't like it. That's what we're dealing with. So, it's difficult to convince people that something is in their best interest if they're being intentionally obtuse and they don't like it because Obama made it the law. 
Well, first of all, the only reason why Obama's FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, decided to codify net neutrality into law was because we twisted his arm and we forced him to do that. Obama was staying silent at first until he was basically compelled to speak out on behalf of net neutrality. So, I mean, Ajit Pai in constantly appearing on these news shows... He's really doing a lot to spread misinformation about net neutrality. And what's interesting is that he refuses to go on any show that's even remotely left-leaning. So, for example, Joy Reid, who, again, did a surprisingly good job on net neutrality, invited Ajit Pai on the show, and he declined. He will only go on right-wing or on shows with right-wing hosts, which is pretty telling because he doesn't want his ideas to be challenged, when if you are confident in what you believe in, then you're not worried about being challenged because you know the truth is on your side. But Ajit Pai is smart. He knows that he's lying through his goddamn teeth, which is why he doesn't want his ideas to be challenged. And he's going on as many right-wing shows as he possibly can because, you know, time is ticking. He's going to repeal net neutrality in a couple of weeks, actually in one week now. And he wants to make sure that he has as many Americans on his side as possible because he knows that there's going to be a lot of backlash when the FCC votes to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. But look, all he's doing here is muddying the waters. The people who support net neutrality are not going to stop supporting net neutrality because we all know that Ajit Pai is lying. So in the end, uh, most likely he will be voting to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. It's, it's pretty much... A foregone conclusion at this point, unfortunately, but we've got to stay vigilant and we have to protest. Show up to the FCC and do not let them make that vote. Protest, occupy the FCC. We've got to do what we can. Go to VerizonProtest.com. Protest in front of a Verizon store to make your voice heard. We have to do what we can. We have to make more noise about this issue because he hears us, but he just doesn't care, which is really disheartening. So anytime a government agency like the FCC proposes sweeping regulatory changes, they're supposed to propose these new rules and then they will send that off to the public and allow them a couple of months to comment on these new changes. And this is exactly what the FCC did when it came to net neutrality. But even though it's clearly the case that this comment process has been compromised and there was a lot of fake comments that fraudulently used people's identities without their permission, Ajit Pai nonetheless is still pushing through this vote to repeal net neutrality as soon as he possibly can, which prompted a lot of people to call for a delay in this vote. Now, we all know that his quest to repeal net neutrality is contingent on his loyalty to his former employer, Verizon. And let me remind you that Verizon is literally the biggest spender when it comes to anti-net neutrality lobbying. And when Ajit Pai leaves the FCC, he'll most likely get his old job back with a huge hiring bonus. And we have good reason to believe that this is actually the case since he's still shilling for them and he literally just gave a keynote address at Verizon's headquarters in Washington, D.C. just one week before he's going to be voting to kill net neutrality. And if you're wondering what he said to them, well, you'll have to keep wondering because that speech is secret. The transcript is not made public. So the reason why I'm telling you about all of this is to establish the fact that Ajit Pai is a shill for Verizon, his former employer. He's still clearly loyal to them, which is why he's trying to push this vote through as fast as he possibly can. But since he's rapidly taking the country and the internet in an entirely different direction so quickly... 
there's been a number of Democratic senators who called on him to pump the brakes. In fact, a number of consumer advocacy groups, along with the city of New York, actually sent him a letter essentially urging him to stop what he's doing and at least temporarily delay the vote. Now, I do support a delay in the vote, obviously, but the fact is that there should not be a vote period to repeal net neutrality because the overwhelming majority of the American people don't want him to repeal net neutrality. So he should listen to us since he is an unelected bureaucrat. He shouldn't make sweeping decisions that the overwhelming majority of the population don't support. But he's going to do it anyway. And we have to remember, this is a rogue FCC chairman who is pursuing this agenda specifically at the behest of internet service providers. But this is how he responded when he received that letter. This is a statement that his office issued, quote, this is just evidence that supporters of heavy-handed internet regulations are becoming more desperate by the day as their effort to defeat Chairman Pai's plan to restore internet freedom has stalled. The vote will proceed as scheduled on December 14th. In other words, if you care about net neutrality and you're one of the people who thinks I should delay this vote, you can go fuck yourself because I will be voting to kill net neutrality on December 14th, whether you like it or not. This is absolutely unbelievable. When I say that he's gone rogue, he has certainly gone rogue. He's made it clear that he does not represent the American people. He only represents the broadband industry. And this proves it. He's still giving speeches to Verizon. He's using their talking points. He has insisted that he refuses to back down no matter what we say. His office explicitly stated that public opinion on net neutrality will not influence him to change his mind. In fact, it will have no bearing on his vote come December 14th. This is an individual that already decided and probably decided from the moment that he was sworn in that he is not going to rest until net neutrality is dead. So at this point, this vote is going to be taking place on December 14th. And he just gave us the finger. He told us exactly what we didn't want to hear nothing will change his mind so this is just a really frustrating situation because it's not like we have any recourse i mean of course we can challenge this in the courts and we will and we'll probably win well hopefully but i mean it's not like we can threaten to primary him or vote him out of office because he's an unelected bureaucrat there's nothing that we can do so it's incredibly disappointing and it just shows that Democracy in this country is dead. You know, along with the repeal of net neutrality, democracy is also dead because it doesn't matter that we want to keep net neutrality since internet service providers like Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T decided that they don't want net neutrality. Well, then what they say goes and what we say means nothing. Even though FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has made it crystal clear that he is not backing down from his attack on net neutrality, he is aware of the backlash he is receiving. And a lot of that backlash is coming from celebrities who are tweeting out stories about net neutrality and doing, I think, a pretty good job at letting their followers know what's at stake if net neutrality is repealed. Now, Ajit Pai actually took the time to respond to some of the criticisms he received from celebrities. For example, Cher tweeted out, Net neutrality means Trump can change the internet. It will include less Americans, not more. Now, Comcast, AT&T, Google will show you only what they want you to see. Slower and more expensive at their whim. See less, charged more. Now, Pai actually responded to Cher, saying, Cher, for example, has tweeted that the internet will include 
include less Americans, not more, if my proposal is adopted. But the opposite is true. The digital divide is all too real. Too many rural and low-income Americans are still unable to get high-speed internet access. But heavy-handed Title II regulations just make the problem worse. So, of course, as usual, Ajit Pai is lying here. Typically, you could tell that he's lying if his mouth is open. So, net neutrality has nothing to do with internet access in rural areas. And in fact, if he cared so much about low-income people, he wouldn't be removing subsidies that make it easier for them to gain access to the internet. But another implication and argument that he's been making is that, well, the problem with net neutrality in these heavy-handed regulations is that they stifle investment, and these internet service providers aren't able to invest because of net neutrality. When that's not true, investment is actually up. It's increasing, and it has increased by 5% overall since these new rules were codified in 2015. Now, investment isn't increasing because these new rules were adopted, but these new rules certainly are not stifling investment, which is what he wants you to think. And of course, the death of net neutrality does mean that less Americans will have access to the internet. Because what happens if Comcast doesn't like a particular website? Well, as we've seen in the past, They'll just throttle their bandwidth and make it so that way you can't really access that website and slow down the speed to that website. They've done this in the past with competitors like Netflix, and it's not just Comcast. It's other companies like Verizon and AT&T who were busted throttling websites that they don't like. So we already know what's going to happen. We see examples of what no net neutrality looks like in other countries like Mexico, and it always ends in the same result. So share is right. And Ajit Pai is wrong, but he also responded to another celebrity, the Hulk. So Mark Ruffalo tweeted, Taking away net neutrality is the authoritarian dream, consolidating information into the hands of a few controlled by a few. Dangerous territory. Now Pai responded by saying these comments are absurd. Getting rid of government authority over the internet is the exact opposite of authoritarianism. Government control is the defining feature of authoritarians, including the one in North Korea. Now he's being incredibly disingenuous because the government isn't regulating the internet to the extent that he claims they are. It's not like the government is approving each website that we're able to see. All the government is saying is that internet service providers who provide access to the internet to consumers are forced to treat all web traffic equally. They can't discriminate against web traffic that they don't like. And the reason why Mark Ruffalo said that this is authoritarianism here is because it is. This is a form of corporate fascism where a couple of internet service providers, Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, are able to act as gatekeepers to all of the content that exists on the internet. Now, mind you, they don't own the internet. All they do is give us access to the internet. So they shouldn't be able to dictate what we do and don't see. But the FCC is allowing them to, in fact, control what we do and don't see. So that's why Mark Ruffalo said this is authoritarianism. This is a form of corporate fascism, which of course is authoritarianism. So Ajit Pai is being incredibly deceptive here again. But there's another celebrity that he responded to, Alyssa Milano. She stated, I know we faced a lot of issues threatening our democracy in the last year, but honestly, the FCC and Ajit Pai's dismantling of net neutrality is one of the biggest. This is a huge deal. Now, Pai responded saying, I'd like to see the evidence that America's democratic institutions were threatened by a Title I framework as opposed to a Title II framework 
during the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the first six years of the Obama administration. Well, I'd like to see evidence, Ajit, that net neutrality is stifling investment because you continue to repeat this claim that we have to repeal net neutrality and these heavy-handed burdensome regulations because they stifle broadband investment and this is keeping poor people and people that live in rural areas from accessing the internet but you haven't given us a shred of evidence to indicate that this is in fact happening in fact all of the evidence shows the contrary and all of a sudden you care about evidence when you haven't provided us with any evidence to a single argument you've made thus far. So I'm glad that you suddenly seem to care about evidence, but you need to take your own advice and offer evidence yourself. Now, these weren't the only celebrities that tweeted out support for net neutrality that Ajit Pai then attacked, but the whole goal in addressing criticism from celebrities was to basically portray outrage over his attack on net neutrality as a celebrity-driven phenomenon with no real grassroots aversion to his plan. But the opposite is true. But Ajit Pai doesn't want it to just seem like celebrities are the only ones driving opposition to his plan because he's also trying to make it seem as though companies that are prominent in Silicon Valley like Twitter are also attacking him. So for example, this is what he said about Twitter. The criticism of this plan comes from more than just Hollywood. I'm also well aware that some in Silicon Valley have criticized it. Twitter, for example, has said that it strongly opposes it and will continue to fight for an open internet which is indispensable to free expression, consumer choice, and innovation. Look, Look, this, this begs the question, why is Ajit Pai doing this? Why is he highlighting criticism that he is receiving from celebrities and Silicon Valley? Well, this is what he wants to do. By bringing awareness to how powerful elites in Hollywood are against him, quote, powerful elites, mind you, he's trying to promote this as a David versus Goliath situation where he's going up against the powerful forces of Hollywood and Twitter in order to fight for a free and open internet when the complete opposite is actually true because his attack on net neutrality is being done with the backing of the most powerful companies in the country like Comcast, Verizon, AT&T. These are companies that have monopolies and control our access to the internet. So by making it seem as though he's really the one who is the little guy who's taking on the big guy, well then, that might make some people who don't really know about net neutrality feel sympathetic towards Ajit Pai. But that's not what's happening at all. Really, the ones who are pulling all the strings are these large internet service providers, and they have Ajit Pai by the balls. They're making sure that anything they want gets included in this plan. So for example, Ajit Pai listened to them when they asked him to include a provision in his repeal plan to block states from passing their own net neutrality laws. Because as you probably would have expected, once he repeals net neutrality nationally, states would now come to the rescue and pass their own net neutrality laws as a result of that. But in his plan, he literally included a provision that blocks states from doing just that. And he included this in his plan just weeks after internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon told him to include it. So they're the ones pulling all the strings. Ajit Pai is not the little guy taking on the big Hollywood elites. This isn't David versus Goliath. And if it is, you're Goliath. We're David. So Ajit Pai, I mean, this just shows how he is doing everything he can. He's pulling out all the tricks in his book to paint himself as the victim, as the one who's really fighting for the noble cause, when in actuality, the opposite is true. He's the bad guy. He wants to destroy the internet. And all these celebrities and websites like Twitter are doing is shining light on what he's doing at the behest of internet service providers.
Brendan Carr is another Republican FCC commissioner that will be voting to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations on December 14th. And he was on CBS New York to talk about net neutrality recently. And throughout the course of this interview, you're going to learn that this is an individual that doesn't care at all about facts. So first of all, one of the biggest arguments that the FCC has used to justify the repeal of net neutrality is that it stifles investment. But proponents of net neutrality like myself have pointed out that that's not actually the case. In fact, investment actually increased since these new rules were adopted. Now, when the CBS reporter tells him about this fact, Watch how he blatantly disregards everything she has to say about investment. Well, the primary argument put forth by the FCC for repealing net neutrality has been a decline in broadband investment since yeah. the rules were put in place. Yet, in its first quarterly report of the year, Comcast claimed it increased its investment in broadband deployment by over 10%. AT&T says it will expand its fiber network from nearly 4 million homes to 12.5 million homes by 2019. So if these rules are stifling telecoms, then how does the commission account for these increases? Yeah, it's a good question. There's actually two issues here. One is there's a pure legal question, which is, is internet, is internet access service a Title I service under the Communications Act or a Title II service? That legal determination is sort of different from these policy debates and from the debates about investment. But once you move into the investment, I think we have seen really negative impacts from our two-year detour in the Title II regulation. The studies that we have that we point to in our document show uh, a significant decline in investment by ISPs. We have affidavits from dozens of smaller broadband providers that specifically talk about the new deployments that they were going to do that they pulled back on because of Title II. And we walk through some examples of innovative new services that ISPs have kept on the shelf as a result of Title II. A lot of studies that look at sort of the increased investment that they claim, they take into account investments made in Mexico or investments made in services that are not Title II services. So I think the studies that we're looking at show uh, a decrease in investment. And that's a problem when you talk about needing to get more investment to get more broadband, more competition to more consumers. So notice how when he was initially asked that question, the first thing he tries to do is change the subject. He started talking about, oh, well, this is a legal question. Right, we're not asking you about the legal question. We're asking you about the argument that you and Ajit Pai keep using to justify the repeal of net neutrality. You're saying that this has to be repealed because it stifles investment. But I'm telling you that investment increased. And he immediately tries to change the subject. But when he actually does get around to talking about what he was initially asked, he brings up biased right-wing studies that talk about how investment by ISPs actually declined when that's not true. Companies like Comcast and AT&T are obligated to give investors accurate information about investment prospects. And since companies like Comcast and AT&T have increased investment since overall the industry by and large has increased investment by 5%, how can you still maintain that investment is being stifled here because of net neutrality? It makes no sense whatsoever, but I mean, he just brazenly rejected everything she said. He disregarded the facts and went on to parrot the same exact claim that ISPs wanted him to parrot about how Title II net neutrality regulations hurt investment, yada, yada, yada. Well, that's just factually incorrect. You're wrong. So when she's telling him that well, you say that net neutrality hurts investment, but it's not. Here are the facts. He says, no, it's actually the opposite. It has a negative impact on investment.
So it doesn't matter what facts you provide him with, he's going to tell you that the opposite is true. But she also asked him about throttling, and he did the same type of mental jujitsu and dodging in order to avoid reality yet again. We've already seen examples of service providers blocking, throttling, or offering preferential treatment to particular sites or services. For example, Verizon throttling Netflix's content over their networks. What is your view of those kinds of practices? Are they anti-consumer? And if so, how will the commission guard against those kinds of practices? Oh, I don't think ISPs should be engaging in uh, blocking or conduct like that. But again, if you step back, the FCC's Title II rules are not the one bulwark between us and ISPs engaging in that conduct. There are other reasons why we don't see ISPs engaging in that conduct. Those other reasons are going to stay in place after the FCC's vote. Some of those have to do with the Federal Trade Commission, with federal antitrust laws, uh, with the Sherman Act. So there's a lot of reasons why we don't see that conduct. It's not because of the FCC's Title II rules standing alone. Oh, I don't personally think that ISPs should be able to block or throttle content that they don't like, but I still think it's really important that I empower them to have that ability just in case they want to throttle content that they don't like. If you just stop and think about his argument for a couple of seconds, you'll realize that it doesn't make any sense at all. Because if you don't think that internet service providers should be throttling content they don't like, then why do you find it necessary to roll back regulations that prevent them from doing just that? It doesn't make any sense now, does it? If Title II regulations aren't the biggest protections we have against anti-competitive behavior from large internet service providers, then why are they spending so much money lobbying to kill it? And furthermore, if there are other rules on the books that protect net neutrality, what makes him think that internet service providers won't lobby to kill those as well? So if he doesn't believe that internet service providers should be able to block or throttle content that they don't like, then why wouldn't you want to keep as many regulations on the books as possible? Because he doesn't care what they do. He was given orders from the industry he came from and he's doing exactly what they want him to do so that way when he leaves the FCC he can get hired back at these companies that's what this is about and really i'm giving him too much credit in accepting that there are other net neutrality laws that will prevent them from doing any throttling or blocking of content net neutrality is the biggest safeguard against throttling and blocking that we have and look this isn't just a partial repeal of net neutrality they're not chipping away at net neutrality this is a full repeal of net neutrality you can actually read the order on the fcc's website they are fully repealing net neutrality and they're blocking states from implementing their own net neutrality rules. So he might claim that he doesn't want internet service providers to be able to block or throttle content, but he's doing everything he can to make sure they have the power to block and throttle content. So this guy does not care about the facts. He doesn't even care how ridiculous he looks as he brazenly lies through his teeth. He doesn't care how obvious it is that he's lying. All he cares about is doing what he was sent to the FCC to do. Destroy net neutrality so that way Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T make billions of dollars, potentially trillions in profit by ripping us off even more and censoring content that they don't like. Ted Cruz decided to weigh in on the net neutrality debate, and since he is an internet porn aficionado, you would think that he'd come out on the side of net neutrality, but of course he also is a Republican Party hack, 
And he, of course, came out against net neutrality. So he teamed up with the necklace Nimrod on the FCC, Michael Riley, and they both penned an op-ed in Roll Call where they unequivocally came out in favor of the FCC's decision to repeal Title II net neutrality regulations. So the piece is titled, Stop the Next Internet Power Grab. And no, he's not insinuating that the FCC should prevent large internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon from taking control of the internet by acting as gatekeepers to everything we access online. His argument, instead, is that the government shouldn't be able to take over the internet by preventing these companies from taking over the internet. So logically, his argument makes no sense, but this is Ted Cruz, so he's not known to make a lot of sense. But his argument in this particular piece relates to why he doesn't believe states and local governments should be allowed to pass their own net neutrality laws. And in this piece, he actually encourages the FCC to block states from putting into place their own net neutrality laws. Now, this complicates the issue for Ted Cruz even more because basically he's been relatively consistent as a Republican who has argued in favor of states' rights and federalism. In fact, this is how he defined federalism recently. How do you define practical federalism? Well, it is the genius of the Constitution. It is the genius of the Tenth Amendment that, that the states serve, as, as Supreme Court Justice Lewis Brandeis put it, as laboratories of democracy. That the Constitution just defines the powers of, of Congress. In Article One, Section 8, they are few and enumerated. And everything that is not in there is left to the states to decide. So you just saw him argue in favor of states' rights and in favor of states' having the autonomy to do what they please. But now in this opinion piece, we're going to see him argue the opposite. So he states, the internet has changed how we communicate, engage in commerce, and live our lives. It not only provides a platform that can be used to promote free speech, but serves as a great equalizer when it comes to jobs and opportunity by dramatically reducing the barriers of entry for anyone with a new idea and broadband connection. The Obama-era regulations give federal bureaucrats new authority to regulate pricing and terms of service and eventually even collect billions in new taxes. This policy not only threatens investment across the United States, but seeks to force companies of all sizes to ask the government for prior approval of business decisions. The end result is less broadband, less innovation, and less freedom for the American consumer. Thankfully, relief will soon be on the way as the Federal Communications Commission under Chairman Ajit Pai seeks to repeal the so-called open internet order and return the internet to its original classification as an information service which allowed the internet to flourish, but the restoration of internet freedom may be short-lived as there are already scores of politicians and state and local regulators who have indicated an interest in replicating the Obama administration's fatally flawed rules at the state and local level. Allowing the Obama administration's dangerous policy to infest the internet through state and local government mandates serves no purpose other than to stifle America's entrepreneurial spirit, frustrate innovation and block economic opportunity. For these reasons, it is imperative that the FCC establish a strong deregulatory federal framework for broadband regulations and preempt state and local regulations from having the opportunity to implement the next internet power grab. Except he supports the next big internet power grab. He supports these large internet service providers like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon to be able to act as gatekeepers to the content that we see on the internet, which... You know, if you care about freedom on the internet, you should be against this. But 
Ted Cruz, like Ajit Pai and other FCC commissioners, are masters in doublespeak, and he's saying one thing that sounds good to all of us, but when you actually look at the policy he's supporting, well, it does the opposite of what he's insisting. So let's get to some of the specifics. He states that the Obama-era regulations give bureaucrats new authority to regulate pricing and terms of service. That's not true. And what he's talking about here in saying that they have the authority to regulate pricing in terms of service means that they are telling internet service providers that they're not allowed to impose fees on websites that they don't like. He also states that this policy threatens investment, which again is not true. Comcast increased investment by 10% in broadband infrastructure and overall investment when you look at the aggregate industry is up by 5%. 9% if you exclude companies that already finished building their new broadband networks. So he's just outright lying here. Now, additionally, he says that the result of these Obama-era regulations is less freedom for the American consumer. But we can easily test out this theory in order to quickly determine that it's bullshit. Try going to any website you could think of. Try it. I've said this. I've said this multiple times on the show. Try going to any website. If you're still able to access any website you want and all websites at the same speed, then guess what? We still have freedom on the internet. They're the ones who are against freedom. They're the ones who want to change that and take freedom away from consumers by giving power to these large internet service providers. So clearly in making these arguments, Ted Cruz has no clue what net neutrality is or what it means. But unfortunately for him, as a lover of internet porn, he's going to learn the hard way. But since I'm nice, I'll go ahead and educate Ted Cruz. Excellent. <laughs> All right, Ted, so imagine that you're trying to access pornographic content that you frequently enjoy on Pornhub, for example. But all of a sudden, when you are browsing this website, you get this message that pops up and tells you that Pornhub actually isn't included in your internet plan. And if you want to see the video that you tried to click on, you're going to have to upgrade your internet plan in order to pay for the porn package, for example. This is the exact type of scenario that could come to fruition if net neutrality is repealed. Now, I'm pretty sure that Ted Cruz knows this. The problem is that he's just a disingenuous liar, but as someone who loves porn, he is willing to hurt his own right to watch porn at the behest of his donors because he accepts donations from internet service providers. So that's why he's coming out and putting his neck on the line to speak out against net neutrality, even if it makes him look like a gigantic hypocrite because he claims to be a supporter of federalism. Well, here he is specifically making an anti-federalism argument in this article here for what well it's because he's a puppet his donors in the broadband industry probably told him to write this and so he of course decided to come to the rescue and do that well if ted cruz really wants to continue watching porn as frequently as he probably does then he should be on the side of net neutrality not against it but of course it's ted cruz um and he is the most disingenuous smarmy person in all of politics so you know we shouldn't have ever expected anything but this from him. So, a few months ago on the show, I introduced you to a mother and an activist named Amy Valela. Amy's daughter, Shalin, died because she had a medical emergency and was unable to provide proof 
that she had insurance when she visited an emergency room. And had she been seen, she would have been given basic medical screenings that would have undoubtedly saved her life. So Amy has made it her life's mission to fight for Medicare for All to make sure that what happened to her daughter never happens to another American ever again. Now, Amy showed up to a town hall over Mother's Day weekend to ask her representative, Ruben Kiwin, of Nevada's 4th Congressional District to co-sponsor H.R. 676. Now, this is a bill that expands Medicare to everyone, and it guarantees health care to every single American. Now, she actually shared her story about what happened to her daughter, Shalin, with Ruben Kiwin, and he looked her in the face and basically said no, and he's not going to be co-sponsoring HR 676 regardless if it would save lives like the life of her daughter. Now when I saw this I was outraged and I made a call to his office demanding that he co-sponsor the bill and also a lot of my viewers followed suit and we actually filled up both of his phones and I warned him that progressives would primary him if he continued to defy the will of his constituents and voters across the country and in July of this year we made good on that promise. We actually did find someone to primary Mary Ruben Kewen, and that individual is the very mother, Amy Valela, who we looked in the face and said no to. So, ever since she announced her campaign on July 19th on The Humanist Report, she has been campaigning like crazy, and she went on to join Justice Democrats, and she's now also running with brand new Congress. So, Amy Valela is a phenomenal candidate and a huge threat to Ruben Kewen, so you'd think that he would get scared. And he'd co-sponsor H.R. 676 to make sure that he reduces this huge threat that is Amy Valela, who could very well give him a run for his money. But he has still refused to get on board with Medicare for All, and as a result of his unwillingness to co-sponsor H.R. 676, he put his entire career in jeopardy. But if his refusal to represent his constituents doesn't end his career, something else probably will because in addition to him being a corrupt shill for the private insurance industry there's reason to believe that he's also a pervert because a bombshell story that was published in buzzfeed news on december 4th may actually be the final nail in the coffin that is ruben kiwin's career so this story reports that a woman named samantha who served as kiwin's finance director to his 2016 congressional campaign came forward with allegations alleging, quote, he repeatedly harassed and made sexual advances toward her during his 2016 congressional campaign and propositioned her for dates and sex despite her repeated rejections. On two occasions, she says he touched her thighs without consent. And this led to her abruptly quitting since he made her feel so uncomfortable on the job, which is understandable. Now, after these allegations came out, his office released a statement which says, The staff member in question was a valued member of my team. I sincerely apologize for anything that I may have said or done that made her feel uncomfortable. I take this matter seriously as it is not indicative of who I am. I was raised in a strong family that taught me to treat women with the utmost dignity and respect. I have spent my 15 years in public service fighting for women's equality and I will continue to do so. Now, after this story was published, his office released a follow-up statement saying he wanted to, quote, make it clear that I don't recall any of the circumstances. So he basically tacitly admitted guilt and then he went on to pretend as though he uh, doesn't remember what she's talking about. So 
this is an allegation that is very credible because there are witnesses who Samantha spoke with at the time when he made these advances to her that recall when she brought this to their attention. So this is bad. And it actually got worse for Kiwan after this because Ben Ray Luan, who is actually the chairman of the DCCC, called on Ruben Kiwan to resign. And that's not all. House Minority Speaker Nancy Pelosi also called on him to resign, saying in Congress no one should face sexual harassment in order to work in an office or in a campaign. The young woman's documented account is convincing, and I commend her for the courage it took to come forward. In light of these upsetting allegations, Congressman Kewin should resign. So at this point, I think it's pretty safe to say that Reuben Kewin's career is over. But this isn't a story about Ruben Kiwin. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because I actually want to talk about Amy Valela. Because since she's Ruben Kiwin's main primary opponent and his career is now effectively over, well, you'd think that she'd automatically become the Democratic Party's presumptive nominee in Nevada's 4th Congressional District by default. However, that's not necessarily the case because local media is completely ignoring that she even exists and the local Democratic Party in Nevada, who's still largely under the control of retired Senator Harry Reid, they're also trying to pretend as though Amy doesn't exist because they don't want someone like Amy Valela in that seat to represent that district because she's refusing to take corporate money. She's not going to be a puppet of these corporate interests. She's actually going to represent the people. And that's a problem for a really corrupt state party that usually only tries to run corporate-friendly candidates that are willing to look out for their donors' best interests. Now, this should go without saying, but I'm not trying to capitalize on Samantha's misfortune in order to boost Amy Valela's campaign. I wish that what happened to her never happened because, I mean, this poor girl, she's, she's 25 years old. She is deciding to get into politics. She's working for a congressional campaign, and this happens to her. She's probably going to be discouraged to ever participate in politics again at a time when we need everyone to get involved in any way they possibly can. So I find this just so saddening. So in talking about Amy Valela, I don't want it to seem as though I'm trying to exploit tragedy here because that's not the case. But at the same time, we need to be practical. And we've got to make sure that we're cognizant of the fact that the Nevada Democratic Party will most likely still continue to ignore Amy Valela, if not steamroll her, and try to position someone else to take over Ruben Kiwin's seat. And this could happen if we don't quickly move to legitimize her candidacy. I mean, the window of opportunity is going to be very small here. So the way that we can actually legitimize Amy Valela is if we speak the only language politicians know to the Nevada Democratic Party. We speak in terms of money. So if we donate to Amy Valela's campaign right now, and she's actually able to raise a lot of money, this might dissuade the party from even trying to push a corporatist into that seat. So now is the time to make a difference and make some noise. If you go to amyforthepeople.com, you can donate to her campaign and make sure that nobody else is pushed into that position, that Amy Valela rightfully becomes the Democratic Party's nominee in the 4th Congressional District of Nevada. So, Ruben Cuban has to resign, and I really, really hope that the party makes it right with regard to Samantha, uh, because that that's so sickening, that's so sad that this young person 
will now probably never want to get back involved with politics again because of what happened to her, because of this asshole and what he did. But the Democratic Party, in the same breath, we're not going to let them get away with steamrolling Amy Valela. We have to respect women, and we need to be aware of what they're going to do, and it's going to be shady. But Amy Valela is the one who deserves that seat. Well, I am done talking for today. <laughs> That's all I got for this episode. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to me um, go on and on about politics. Um, hopefully, you found value in this episode. And, you know, before we end, of course, I want to send a huge shout out to all of our PayPal contributors and our Patreon patrons. Thank you all so much for helping us to not just survive, but thrive in this anti-independent media climate we are experiencing um, not just on YouTube, but on the internet in general. So thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Have a great day. Take care.